Welcome, everybody, to Breaking with Crystal Kyle and Friends. Breaking <laughs> Points, Crystal Kyle and Friends. Crystal, Crystal Kyle and Friends, Breaking Points. Crystal Kyle and Breaking Points set. Breaking Crystal Kyle and Friends points. <laughs> there, that's the winner. That's that sounds kind of dirty. That sounds kind of dirty. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> Breaking Crystal Kyle and Friends points. Sounds like there's some weird coded language about like a giant orgy or something. <laughs> okay, that's Breaking not where my mind Chris- went, well, but whatever. Where anyway, mine went. it's right where mine went. <laughs> it's Crystal Kyle and Friends. We are on the Breaking Point set. Um, we had a tight turnaround to get to our guest today. We wanted to make sure that we got CoffeeZilla in to talk about SBF and all things scammy and why people are vulnerable to these scams in the first place. So wanted to make it work. So that's why we're on the Breaking Point set. I love this guy. I love CoffeeZilla. He's phenomenal. Yeah, he's His whole great. thing is like, I'm just going to track scams and expose the scams. And obviously, he was all over the SBF and FTX thing. And I learned a lot of what I know about what happened directly from him. He was ahead of everybody else. Months before, he was like, hey, here's the clip of this guy saying that he loves Ponzi schemes. Yeah. And, and so, and not only that, um, so he asked repeatedly SBF for an interview, which uh, you guys probably know, even after he was caught and the whole thing collapsed, he kept going out to all kinds of media figures and independent media and established media and giving interviews out. And he would never uh, accept an interview request from CoffeeZilla. Gee, I wonder why. But what he did was he would sneak into, not sneak in, but he would go onto these Twitter spaces and be able to grab the mic and question him. And he even basically got him to admit the core of his fraud, which was taking the customer funds and then just using them for whatever. And, um, yeah, none of, Alameda, in Alameda yeah, with them. Yeah. None of the other, uh, you know, George Stephanopoulos or Andrew Ross Sorkin, these established journalists who I think did a fine job questioning him, but he was sort of able to evade and use this technical finance jargon and whatever to throw up a smokescreen to get away from the core of the questions they were asking. Um, CoffeeZilla was able very strategically to kind of get him dead to rights on that in a way that may actually become very relevant in terms of his future legal cases. So, um, very impressive guy. Really excited to talk to him. This guy's the man. Definitely check out his YouTube channel. But speaking of YouTube channels, I got a little bit of an announcement to make here, Crystal. I got a little bit of an announcement to make here. Yes. Uh, the Secular Talk YouTube channel has crossed 1 billion views. That is so crazy. I'm, I can't even wrap my head around that. That is wild. I, I'm just like, I'm in awe. Wow. I'm absolutely floored by it. Um, so I, honestly, I didn't even really know. I didn't even know. My buddy, Henry, yeah. who's been, I've been, you know, I've been friends with him my whole life. We were really close in high school. He texts me this morning and he said, it says like, congrats, dude. And he sent like a little screenshot and I clicked it. And I was, at first I was like, I didn't know exactly what I was looking at because yeah. it wasn't like zoomed in or anything. And then I realized, I was like, holy shit, the last time I looked, because I did have the thought of like, oh, when I hit a billion views, I can't like, well, I'm going to talk about that. It's going to be really cool. Yeah. But uh, last time I looked, it was like probably 880 million, 885 million. Yeah. And so when I saw it, I was like, it's going to be a while. Like, I don't have to think about it. It's going to be a while. Yeah, that's right? going to be a minute. Yeah. But that, that wasn't even that long ago. It really? feels like it was relatively recently wow. in the grand scheme of things. And so. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I, I mean, that really I'm shocked. is a number that you just like genuinely cannot wrap your head around. No, that's right. <laughs> that's what Corin said too. I showed him, he was like, Jesus, that, that's, it's hard to wrap your mind around that number. So I want to, I want to do a massive thank you. Of course, first and foremost to you guys in the audience. You guys are awesome. I have no idea why you want to listen to me babble day in and day out. I don't even want to listen to me babble day in and day out, but some people like clicking the videos, and I deeply appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. And also, a massive shout-out to Lilith, who's been 
uh, basically helping me since day one. Wow. She's been helping me since day one. She does so much for the show to this day. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to do everything that I did uh, without her input. And, uh, of course, thank you to you. <laughs> thank you to everybody in the control room. I mean, I know every, we kind of got together recently and everything. Mm-hmm. But still, every, every little bit of, of help is amazing and appreciated. Shout out to Peter. Peter, uh, always on top of the editing and stuff. And, yep. you know, that's... Uh, and he took, I mean, he took a giant weight off my shoulders. But, you know, because I edited my own stuff for so long. For a long time. Right up <laughs> so, until this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, there were brief periods in the past where I did have somebody do it. But yeah. uh, nowhere near as good as Peter, let's say. Well, I like spending all day with you, and I listen to your videos. That's what a super fan I am. That's, so, very, sweet you, That's <laughs> very, very sweet of you. That's very, very sweet of you. I question your and, judgment. And then we okay. argue about the topics off air, too. <laughs> that's exactly what we do, yeah, which is why it's always good to throw a camera on when we're talking. But... Uh, yeah, I remember when when the Young Turks a while ago hit a billion views and they had like a big billion views party. Oh, really? Yeah, and I remember thinking like, oh, I should probably do something like that. And then now I didn't even realize I crossed it. Now we're talking about it on a random day. That's you very know. sweet that your boy was checking your stats for you. That I, I that was wasn't it? Yeah. And this guy's busy. This guy's a doctor. He's a doctor. Like he's got stuff he's doing. He's got a kid. He's got a wife. And I was I, I don't know. I thought it was very sweet. I'm getting a little emotional here, but. <laughs> um, I think, I don't know, it's definitely top 1% of YouTube. Um, I don't know if it's top fraction of top 1%. I don't know, because I think there's probably other channels. Like, I don't know, someone should check the CNN numbers. Probably, like, over a billion there, but that's because well, they release literally, like, 20 videos a day. I mean, know? the thing you always told me when I was first, uh, when I was a YouTube noob, was consistency. Like, just be committed to the process, be committed to just, like, showing up, having a regular schedule, being, you know, having it be something too that's sustainable. Like you were at the beginning, like really churning and burning, just like honestly, Sagar and I were over at Rising. But having a schedule that is consistent, sustainable, and really loving the process of it outside of any particular outcome, because I mean, it's a very fickle situation. You're up, you're down, you never know the algorithms of black box or whatever. So if you just like genuinely enjoy the creation of the thing, then you're going to have longevity. You have to treat it, number one, like a job. Number two, it has to be your passion. You need, you need to, to stick to those things. And then, yeah, if you keep showing up, you know, you're going to, you're beating 80% of the competition just by continuing to show up. Like, True. I'm sort of, I'm low-key jealous of the people who can release, like, one video a week or one video a month and do well. Shoe on it! <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's others, too. But I, I am sort of jealous of those people because it's like, if I release one video a week or one video a month or whatever it was, I'd still probably get about the same view per video as I do now, or maybe a little bit more, right? Like, I, maybe the video would hit 100K or something like that. Well, it's just a total, totally different type of content they're producing. Though. It is. And and what we are doing, we're covering news and politics and, and economic stuff and, like, being immersed in this stuff on a daily basis, you have to really dedicate yourself and keep showing up and keep pumping stuff out. And the other thing you have to do is you just, you cannot... At any point, for any reason, just follow the crowd. You have to mm-hmm. go with what you actually think, what you actually believe, what actually interests you. That's, That's true, where a yeah. lot of, I feel like a lot of YouTubers sometimes get lost doing what we do in, they start doing this like meta thinking of like, what do I think the people want me to, you can't do that. 
You just got to say. They're, or they're just surfing, like, whatever clicked for them. Well, right. That's, yeah. We're saying the same thing in a different yeah. way there. Yeah. It's like, oh, this clicked. Maybe I'll do another one like this. But then you're square peg, round hole in a situation, trying to, like, shoehorn it into somewhere it doesn't belong. And it just, anyway. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very. Yes, baby. I'm very flattered. Um, I will say this while we're on this topic. When I hit a million subs, which right now I'm at, like, 981 or something like that. When I hit a million, I don't know when that's going to be because subs have been a huge issue ever since the algorithm changed and they prioritize authoritative content. We don't ser- we don't get our stuff, stuff served to as many new people, so it's hard to grow. Yeah. But when we do hit a million subs, I'm going to do like a, a special stream. going to cool. do like a, a long stream and it'll be like, you know, actually celebrated. So. I like that. Yeah. So anyway. All right. Thanks, guys. I, I don't know what else to say, but from the bottom of my heart, I love you. Thanks for making all this happen. Couldn't happen without you. Uh, and yeah, there you go. Okay, uh, should let's talk about Nick Fuentes and Alex Jones. So, you know, everybody saw the whole meltdown with Kanye West on the panel with Alex Jones and Nick mm-hmm. Fuentes, and Kanye told everybody in no uncertain terms how much he loves Hitler and he wants to coddle his ball sack and tickle his taint. Right. Um, and. Alex was sort of, he looked like reasonable in the context of that conversation. <laughs> scary, yeah. Because, you know, he sort of broke character a few times, too. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. But, and Nick is just sitting over there, like, basically smiling and nodding. And agreeing, with, and agreeing with Kanye. Yeah. Uh, well, now, since then, um, Alex Jones has invited Nick Fuentes back on his show to have a debate about whether or not Hitler was based. Oh, my God. I wish I was kidding. Oh I wish God. I was joking. <laughs> I am not. Well, yeah, this was a, a. I think they spoke for over an hour and twenty I minutes. I haven't or watched like this that. yet, by the way. Yeah, Crystal hasn't seen this yet. I watched the entire. Debate. Did you really? I did. Oh I watched the whole God. thing. I mean, I watched it on double speed, but I watched the whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, let's take a look at the video and then we'll react. In my view, just let's just get the Hitler thing out of the way. Do you actually admire Adolf Hitler? In some ways, yes. And I'm not a national socialist and I'm not a, you know, I wouldn't identify that way because I'm a, I'm a Christian. So I'm not any kind of a socialist or a fascist. I, I like, yay, believe we should have a Christian government. It's a Christian country. God runs the world. We should have a government in accordance with that. But, but honestly, I, I don't share this, uh, histrionic Jewish view that Hitler is this exceptionally boogeyman, evil figure. Uh, the 20th century is full of, of violence. The 20th century is full of, authoritarian ideologies run rampant and and that's a product of modernism and liberalism and all kinds of trends um but but this idea that that like my life is in any way impacted by hitler i have a lot more animosity for the adl i have a lot more animosity for the zoa i have a lot more animosity for the groups that have actually made my life and the life of my family materially worse personally and across the board with the society uh I'm, i'm sick of being expected by Jewish media and Holocaust museums to to beat my chest like you kind of did the other week and say, oh, I hate Hitler. I, Hitler's, a, you know, it's it's like this weird. It's like 1984, you know, when they put the face on the TV and everybody's got to get all wound up. Uh, he's he's you're talking about 10 minutes. Figure. You're talking about 10 minutes of hate. Well, I legitimately hate Stalin, hate Mao, hate Hitler, hate the ADL, hate Barack Obama, hate the Democratic Party. And and I've always, remember me on Pierce Morgan? I didn't get a call from the ADL 
when I was on Pierce Morgan, the most popular thing he ever did, the biggest thing CNN did that year, they had a, the, the, the ratings. They had like 50 million viewers for that. Their average show had like 10 million back then. And I said, Hitler took the guns. Stalin took the guns. Mao took the guns. And if you try to take our guns, 1776 will commence again. I've always criticized Hitler. I've made documentaries about the Bush family helping fund Hitler and, and the British royalty. So where we have a sticking point is, is that Alex got the call as you as you sent out on social media. And I'm just curious, do you think I actually got a call to come out and criticize Hitler? You think that's a new thing for me? No, no. I know that you're very uh, vocally anti-Hitler over the years. I know that you're more of a libertarian. And so you have this view of history, which which lumps in together Mao, Stalin, Hitler as authoritarians versus uh, freedom fighters, capitalists, you know, George, Georgia, Washington, Thomas Jefferson. So I, I'm familiar with your show and all of that. And and honestly, it was a little bit glib. You called me baby Hitler. I said you got a call. You know, quite honestly, it's banter. But it is well known that you don't really talk about this issue. You're you're more talking about New World Order, Bill Gates and, and these sort of obscure conspiracy theories like Bilderberg. My show is a lot more focused on, you know, what you might call the Jewish question, which is what are we to do about this Jewish elite these Jewish gangsters that run our Christian country. These and, and, I think, and, and I think that's a debate that should be had because there's no doubt that leftism and the whole globalist power grab has wrapped itself in Judaism as its defense. So <laughs> there was so much there. So what you just saw there, and there's that's the reason why I picked this clip yeah. in particular. It's a microcosm of the entire debate, okay. which is Alex Jones being like, you know, I disagree with you. Hitler's bad. Hitler's wrong. He's a dictator. It wasn't right what he did. But you're asking a bunch of reasonable questions. Right. And, you know, about, this about is something the, that should be discussed because we believe in the First Amendment. Right. About the Jewish media and the Jewish control of Washington. I mean, it's first, I, I don't I'm reluctant to even analyze this like it's like a serious debate. I'm but going to. Fuentes <laughs> does something at the very beginning that is, you know, uh, he, he shifts the terms of the debate because Alex Jones says to him, do you admire Hitler? And he says, yes, I do. And then rather than going into like, I think he's great because he did X or Y or Z, he shifts it to, listen, he's not the only one who did evil things. And we have this fixation on it, which is a very different. I mean, listen, that's also like, I think looking at Hitler as unique evil. I don't think that that's preposterous at all. But that's also a different grounds of debate than I actively admire Hitler, which was his starting point. So to he's your trying point, to sort of, you know, yes, he totally that's indefensible. He totally contradicts himself. Yeah. He goes, he says, Hitler's not an evil boogeyman figure. And then the very next sentence is, there are a lot of evil boogeyman figures. Right. So wait, which is it? Is he a boog evil boogeyman figure? Or is he not an evil boogeyman figure? So. And he starts with, I, in, in many ways, I do admire yes, Hitler. Yes, he said that. So, but <laughs> it's a great point because there's go going to come a time when Nick Fuentes is going to be one-upped. Because this is what we've been, you know, we've been on this track for a long time now where you could argue with Trump in 2016, it kind of reemerged where, you know, he would say the thing without actually saying it. He was sort of the master of like, I'm going to say this thing. I didn't really say the thing that you're saying I said. Right. And so he was the whole game was like um, the dog whistle game. Right. And then eventually, you know, you had people in his mold come through like, you know, the Milo Yiannopoulos types who take it like a step further. Yep. Um, and then. We're just seeing the logical progression of it. So now you have Nick Fuentes, who's willing to say, in many ways, I admire Hitler. But then he also it tries to take off the rough edges by, you know, be doing sophistry, basically. Right. And yes. there's going to come a time where 
he's going to be called, oh, you're a cuck because you don't even go into detail about why you like Hitler. Why you I like will him. go into detail about why I liked Hitler. Well, I mean, this Kanye, is the track that we're on. Kanye already went up. That's right. Because That's right. he is willing to say, like, no, no, I love Hitler. Yes. And here's all the reasons yes. why he built the highways and the microphone or whatever nonsense he goes into. And Alex, Alex was massively cucked in this entire discussion because he doesn't make he doesn't really make an affirmative case as to why, obviously, Hitler's terrible. Let me go through all the specifics of it. He has, like, an anecdote about how his grandfather worked with Nazis and, like, they were rude or whatever. It's like, (laughs) what the fuck are you talking about? And so, ultimately, he like, he's not equipped to have this debate and to have this discussion because he's always making the argument of, like, well, I kind of see where you're coming from, and maybe there's a disagreement to be had here, but, like, I get it. Because he thinks his audience is more on Nick Fuentes' side. That's right. So He's cooking himself to the audience. That's right. He doesn't think that he can, like, do the thing any normal, decent person would do and be like, dude, Hitler's bad. He murdered a lot of people. It was really evil. He tried to take over the world. It was terrible. Instead, he has to... strike some moderate position in his mind about, like, well, you got a point about, like, Jews running everything and, like, throw on all the anti-Semitic tropes you can possibly imagine. But I just draw the line at, you know, I I think, like, I I hate Barack Obama and I also hate Hitler. Like, to me, there's, I mean, Uh, that was the other thing is, like, the way he put all these things to he's like, I hate the ADL and I hate Mao and Stalin and I hate, and Hitler's just one among many. Yeah. So he sort of, like, seeds the ground on that as well. He's like, I hate Barack Obama and I hate Hitler. Yeah, let me, let me, (laughs) let me expound on that too. So, um, yeah, when Nick Fuentes asks, like, do you admire Hitler? He says, in some ways, yes. Um, but then he goes on to say, but really, I'm a Christian, and I want a Christian government. Imagine the the cognitive dissonance to be like, I like Hitler, and I follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Like, can, you cannot get philosophies that are more polar opposites True. than the, the pacifist, you know, communist before communism existed, Jesus Christ. You know, super anti-rich, super in favor of, like, taking care of the poorest uh, among us. I mean, you could not get two polar opposite philosophies. The immigrant and the stranger and the... Yeah, yeah. but even beyond that, though, you know that's not even really what he means when he says, I'm a Christian, I want a Christian government. He means he wants to set up, like, a Christian theocracy, sort of like the Christian version of Saudi Arabia. I mean, I think he's, like, pretty much says that here. He does, yeah, I mean, he he says God runs the world and we should have a country that is run in accordance with that. Like, that's a theocracy. Which, by the way, like, I know now I'm nitpicking because this is, like, such a side point in this broader conversation, but, like, dude... You can't pretend to be, I'm Mr. Like, rational, reasonable, and also I want to implement, like, my very particular religious ideology and force on everybody else. There's literally over 4,000 religions in the world, and is this guy really dumb enough to think, like, no, I happen to be born into the exact right one, and I'm going to force this on everybody else using the law? It just strikes me as so, like, it's amazing to me that somebody like this could get any following at all, even beyond the fucking, like, outright Nazi love. It seems like it, it, anytime you go through stuff he says with a, a fine-tooth comb, it, it, it's absurd. To the Alex point, you already pointed this out, but I wanted to bring it up too. The, I hate Stalin, I hate Mao, I hate Hitler, I hate Barack Obama. <laughs> Look, I got issues with Barack Obama that I've talked about in detail, but Jesus Christ to lump him in with those people? Like, yeah. what the fuck are you doing? Well, and he always, he's done this a number of times. Like, he doesn't feel like he can just let Hitler stand on its own of like, right. Hitler is evil without also throwing in like, let me put some communists in the mix. Right. Let and me said, now, let me throw Barack Germans. Obama if you like the Germans, they kill Germans. Right. Because he knows if he just says, well, they killed Jews, his audience would be like, 
Yeah, but it's, oh, he killed the white people, the white people that we're supposed to love. Then he feels like he's on more solid terrain. So, yeah, I mean, listen, if you go down this path of your whole lane is I'm going to be the provocateur, someone is always going to be there to one-up you. And it didn't just And it didn't start with Trump. I mean, Trump, yes, dog whistles. But it really, Trump took what Fox News was saying and took, took one that step. one step further. That's a further. great point. Yeah. You know, they were doing some more subtle dog whistling. That's right. Right? Yeah. About the crime and, you know, the type of stories they would cover and whatever. And he took that and took it to its logical conclusion of not just where, you know, we want, like, the borders closed, but the immigrants are rapists and they're bad people. And um, then you have, after Trump, yeah, you have this whole set of provocators who's willing to go one step further. Trump himself has now like gone much further in terms of his insanity and how overt he is retweeting his, QAnon on a regular basis and overtly like authoritarian fascist rhetoric terminate too, the constitution completely undeniable but that you're always going to have that person even Nick Fuentes as he sits right now being unwilling to fully articulate his love and admiration for Hitler in detail and his specifics he's already being outdone by Kanye all right so my final point on this um is when Nick was describing what Kanye West does like yeah. what his lane is he goes you don't really talk about uh, about this issue you talk about new world order bill gates bilderberg i'm more focused on the jewish question that's what he says and when i heard that okay yes what alex believes and does is less nefarious than what nick fuentes does obviously but but when i heard that my thought was yeah so you're fucking both wrong right you're, you're all missing the real story here the real story is what I would call the donor class, which is, you know, the big money interest, billionaires, corporations. They pay politicians. Politicians do their bidding. They ignore the will of the people. And this is on virtually every single issue that you poll people on. Like, it, this isn't as sexy a conspiracy, but it is the true conspiracy. It's the open conspiracy. It's, it's out in the open. It's out That's in the, the open. Thing. You don't need to go, you know, I got obsessed with this, like, German coup plot thing with these people who, like, believe that Germany is is really fake and it's, it was set up as a corporation and they want to restore, like, the Kaiser and this fake prince and whatever. And it's like, you know what, guys? And, and the people who disproportionately believe in this conspiracy come from one of the more economically depressed parts of Germany in, you know, former East Germany. And in that state, only 20% of young people say they think that unification has been a success. Mm. Majority of people say they think that in, in East Germany, majority of people think they feel like they are second-class citizens. And so, yeah, you have been screwed over. But the conspiracy is out in the open. You don't need some elaborate, like, behind-the-scenes QAnon-esque type of theory of the global cabal of elites it's all there. The way that the economy is rigged to funnel resources to the top, the way that the political systems are corrupt, the way that jobs have been shipped away and your, you know, downtown's decimated. You don't need some grand conspiracy other than the obvious one that is already out there for all of us to see. If we created a list of, you know, like the top donors to U.S. politicians who end up getting whatever the hell they want on that list, it would it would be majority Christian people. Right. Yeah. Or nominally Christian people, because we live in a country that's over 70 percent Christian. Right. So but that doesn't mean like if I came out here on the show every day and I had the, the, the Christian cabal of, of, you know, satanic elites is, is, you know, controlling everything. That'd be ridiculous. It's like that. 
that's so that's such an ancillary thing what their nominal religion is to the real issue in question and these guys it's just sad because i feel like there's so many people who might get involved in politics might end might go down the wrong rabbit hole yeah and then they genuinely believe a guy like alex jones or nick fuentes or whoever is speaking truth to power the other thing i worry about is you've mentioned a number of times how especially in that interview with kanye and fuentes um the original one alex jones appears like kind of reasonable and that's that's actually a scary phenomenon, and we're seeing this happen in the Republican Party, too, where it's like Brian Kemp, uh, who's the yes. governor of Georgia, just got reelected very easily because he appears moderate in comparison to the totally fucking insane people who were all in on Stop the Steal and all of that nonsense. Brian Kemp is not moderate Correct. by any reasonable stretch of the imagination. He is as far right on social issues, economic issues, like down the line, very consistently hard right. If you didn't have the example of these just like absolute conspiratorial maniacs out there, people would see like, oh, this is a very ideological hard right guy. But because you have this insane fringe showing their asses for everyone to see, Voters look at Brian Kemp and are like, oh, he's he's reasonable. He's moderate. And it's going to be the same thing if um, DeSantis gets through the primary. Right. Let's pretend it's a world where, for whatever reason, Trump backs down and isn't a threat in terms of the general election. Because that's a whole complicated piece. If you just have DeSantis versus Biden, DeSantis appears moderate when compared to the lunacy of Stop the Steal and Trump. There is nothing moderate about Ron DeSantis. So that's the phenomenon that actually concerns me about all of this. Like, people may be able to look really clearly at a Kanye West or Nick Fuentes and be like, these people are maniacs and they're disgusting and deplorable. But then they might look at Alex Jones and be like, you know, he actually is is kind of better than I thought. And he's actually a little more reasonable. It makes people who are crazy and fringe look like they are more moderate than they actually are. So the phenomenon you're talking about is the idea of the Overton window. Overton window, yeah, which that's is it. Like like the spectrum of debate that is reasonable, whereas the, what's considered reasonable. And if you go outside of that spectrum, it's like, oh, you're sort of dismissed and pushed out of the conversation with so many people now with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes and Milo and all these people now going full Nazi. Yeah, the, the Overton window just keeps shifting further and further and further. Right. Yes. And so, you know what the solution is? What? We need uh, Stalin apologists now. In the conversation <laughs> to pull it all the way back up. We need people out there there's, like, there's some I think we should there. nationalize every as, industry. They just don't get as much attention. There are some of those folks out yeah, there. Yeah, but like, unironically now, we need, Bill Maher did this in a new rule segment back when he was sort of based. Yeah. And he was like, um, we need a left version of the Tea Party and they need to be like fucking psycho. They need to demand like, I think you should have drive through abortions at McDonald's. I think that should be part of our our system. Yeah, but then this is the, also the guy who will, like, lose his mind about, you know, people who would say defund the police. And that's kind of like, Well, he's you know, changed. He's changed. Yeah, yeah, years, no, you know? I know. Yeah. But listen, if, I'm going you're, back to, if you're taking the Overton window conversation to its logical end, you should see the people making the most sort of, like, outlandish or fringe claims as potentially useful for the broader conversation. So I don't know. Yeah, it's na- complicated. Nationalize every industry. Yeah. Murder every boss. <laughs> you just go down the list. You can have these people. Murder every who are like, I unironically love Stalin. And uh, I think we should I think the U.S. should become the former Soviet Union. I think we should do everything that they did back then. Yeah. And I then th- when we come in and are like, how about we just like give everybody health care? People are like, like, oh, so, so moderate, like very so reasonable. I, yeah. I want to see somebody go out there and unironically argue to tax everything anybody makes over one hundred thousand dollars a year at one hundred percent. 
I want us to see somebody make that argument. Let's shift that so over then to when a we're like, back, How about 70%? <laughs> people are like, okay, Man, that's moderate. fine. These people are moderate. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, wild, wild debate they had. Yes, indeed. All right, you got one more for us on tobacco, yes. cigarettes, so, um, some world news here. So this story is interesting to me. It's kind of two stories in one. There were legal actions that were taken on the issue of tobacco. So uh, the first one is, let's talk about the U.S. one first. Okay. The Supreme Court refused to block California's ban on flavored tobacco. Okay. Okay, so um, you had the tobacco industry sued saying, please, for the love of God, like, don't do this. And the Supreme Court just sort of swatted it aside, hmm. so now the law is going to stand. Um, there was an interesting argument that they made. So here's what they say in the New York Times about this. Yeah. The company, joined by several smaller ones, argued that a federal law... The Tobacco Control Act of 2009 allows states to regulate tobacco products, but prohibits banning them. Hmm. So their argument was you can't do there's no legal authority for the state of California to do this because um, you can't ban tobacco. You can only regulate tobacco. Right. But so the what they ultimately decided is they could have a ban on flavored tobacco. Right. Correct. That was the ruling. Because that. I guess they put in the bucket of like regulating tobacco, but not outright banning it. Correct. So now let me bring up the New Zealand one, because this is the direction that we're sort of, that we're marching. So New Zealand banned today's children from ever being able to buy cigarettes in their lifetime. So if you were born 2009 or later, it will always be illegal for you to buy cigarettes in New Zealand. Um, they also went, they went a little further than that too. The new law also reduces the number of retailers that are allowed to sell tobacco. Right now it's about 6,000. They're reducing it down to 600. So it's another way of trying to like, you know, sort of, and, and their goal, they're open about this. They say our goal really is to by 2025 get like everybody off cigarettes. Huh. So, uh, tell me, tell me what you think. I mean, that one to me is more clear cut. I don't think I believe in the right of adults to like make decisions, even if those decisions are potentially unhealthy and have some, like, adverse consequences for themselves, as long as they're not, like, hurting other people. I So that one, to me, goes way too far. I'm a little mixed on the flavored tobacco one, because I do know that um, cigarette companies in the past really, like, targeted children, and one of the ways that they did that was by the flavors that they would use. So I'm a little more open to the argument of voters in a state. And I think this was based on a referendum being able to decide, like, we don't want these particular flavors to be sold in our stores here. But how do you respond to the argument that it's always been illegal for kids to buy cigarettes? Yeah, that's true. But um, you still can have these ad campaigns, which even though it's technically illegal, like they're really marketing to children and trying to get them to be hooked and flout the law. But in that scenario, why wouldn't you just make it so they can't do the stealth advertising to children? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To regulate it on those grounds. Because, look, I'm 34 years old. I got a sour apple ice vape right here. <laughs> you know, like the idea that it's just kids yeah, that but use this stuff sure, is not true. That's true. But you also know how prevalent, like, vaping is in high schools and even middle schools because the flavors are yummy. I understand that. But, again... So if you tell me they didn't need a marketing campaign because the product itself was pitched to them. I know but you just, you can't ban it for adults. That just that that seems crazy to me in both scenarios. Both I I don't like I understand that legally speaking maybe the, the court is actually correct about 
about California. Yeah. Do they have the right as a state to regulate flavored cigarettes out of existence? Yeah. I can see an argument for that. Yes. I think I'd fall the other way because I would argue by regulation, it should be like the contents of the cigarette in terms of nicotine percentage, in terms of the carcinogens that are in there. I'd have no problem with even strong regulations like to limit the number of carcinogens, you know, limit the amount of nicotine or whatever. I think that that's all a reasonable debate. But the idea of doing, uh, you know, banning broad swaths of like different flavors, that's just like... Fuck off, man. See, this, I, here's so my here's main a, issue. My question, just to clarify your position. So in California, I believe this was a ballot initiative. So voters went to the polls and said, we want these flavors banned. Is your position that they shouldn't be able to do that? They shouldn't be able to go and vote on banning certain flavors of cigarettes? Or is your position just you personally would have voted no on that? Or uh, my position is I think it's more of a rights issue than it is a democracy issue. In the same way that, and this, I know this is a stretch of an analogy, but in the same way that it wouldn't matter if you had a vote in a state saying, hey, should you ban the expression of very extreme political ideologies? Mm -hmm. That might come back 62% in favor of banning it. Yeah. I don't care because that you're not supposed to be able to democratically vote on issues that are about rights. Yeah. See, I don't see anybody as having like an inherent right to like a, you know, orange flavored cigarette or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, having a like, I I agree with adults being able to buy the product in general. Um, if you have voters in a state that are like, this is, we feel this is harmful potentially to our kids. I don't know. I'm a little more open. To I don't. That. I hate the oh. What about the kids? It's banned for kids. If you want to come up with some strategies to you know crack down harder, change the penalties, put the the comp- the stores out of business if they sell to kids and you prove that they sold to kids. I'm mm-hmm. open to that entire conversation, yeah. but again, the idea for adults. Look, the thing that annoys me is that like this is all under the guise of like, oh, us the government of New Zealand, us and and the government of California, we care so much. We care so much about the people, so we need to intervene to do this because it's for their own good. Mhm. But the only time any government really does this, as a general rule, it's nothing proactive. Like, we're going to give you health care. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you, you know, a check every month. We're going to give you higher education. That's how you would actually help people. Mm-hmm. The way they intervene to, quote, unquote, help people is to be like, you can't do that. Stop. You can't do that. I'm not allowing you to do that. It's like, I'm not fucking asking you your opinion on this shit. Fuck off. Get out of our lives. If you want to help, cut somebody a check. Give somebody health care. Give somebody higher education. I hate this. Like, this is, there's the term nanny state. Yeah. It, it has a, a, a it, there's a pejorative connotation to it. But I could see a scenario where it's like a nanny, you know, hey, you like your nanny. They took you to the doctor and they gave you a lollipop. Like, I can see a positive <laughs> connotation for it too, right? Okay. But this is like the bad version of the nanny state. It's like, bitch, if you want to help me, for the love of God, give me health care. Do something like that. But no, that actually requires, you know, proactive steps and like actual organization and planning and they go that's too much instead i'll just try to prevent you from doing something that i know is unhealthy i this doesn't that argument doesn't really hold up though when you consider it was the voters themselves who decided they wanted this law in the book i just looked at looked at it tobacco industry spent tens of millions of dollars um in support of a measure to keep these flavors on the market but 63% of the state's voters said no. So, I mean, that to me is a bit of a different scenario. I do think no. voters should have be able to have some say over 
what is available on the market and what they think is harmful and what they don't. And especially they obviously felt very strongly about it when it's not a close margin. And when they were up against tens of millions of dollars in tobacco industry lobbying, they still were like, no, that's not what we want in our stores. I, again, I don't care. If you took a vote, everybody on my block, hey, should Kyle stop vaping? And it comes back, all of them say, yes, I should. I don't care. I don't care what they say. Take a fuck off. This is not, a, this is not an issue about but, democracy. Um, but and what next, I'm by the way, are these things. These are coming next. They're going to ban these next at some point. nanny state argument, though, isn't really accurate when it's the voters themselves who are making well, Yeah, the but decision. the government has to enforce it. The government has to enforce it. Yeah, but yeah, I'm you just can saying have you're portraying it as like, way there's, too. you know, oh, they could have given us health care, but instead they do this. Well, I mean, the, that's, the government is actually expressing backing the will of the people here. I, but again, did you, the whole argument I made about they could ban bad speech, but I wouldn't care. Yeah, but I put that in. I don't think that's the same. It is. It's the exact same thing. Are there any issues? I don't think there's a right to a certain type of cigarette. But are there any issues where it shouldn't be open to a Democratic vote? Of course there are. So I just put this in that category because it's somebody. It's it's an adult putting in their body whatever they want to put in their body and they're not hurting anybody else. I just I agree more with the Supreme Court's view of this that to ban them outright would be too far to regulate what could be available on the market. I think that's reasonable. But what about like, see, but the problem, again, the slippery slope argument too. What about like the menthol cigarettes? I mean, this was such a giant, it was a giant portion of the market. And in, in, in your conception of it, it's like, yeah, they could ban that one, but you can't touch the regular ones. That seems so silly. No, it's, it's just, that's a type of, it's not like an irregular cigarette. It's a cigarette that has a flavor. So yeah, if people in the state are like, we want to regulate it in this way, I don't have an issue with that. I just, people need to, I'm just, I'm very libertarian on social issues. I think people should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting anybody else. I understand basic health regulations, like if a cigarette has 900 fucking carcinogens in it, mm-hmm. then hey, regulate it down or change the ingredients. Or I get all that. But when it comes to something like a flavor, it's just, because so what's the limiting the principle? What's the limiting principle? So what if the government came out tomorrow or people voted on it and it was like, well, soda is really bad for you. Uh, so we're going to ban orange soda, grape soda, and they just go down a list of it. It's like at some point you have to be like, no, this is actually authoritarian. You are being authoritarian. You are controlling adults who want to do something differently. So let me ask you uh, this like theoretical question. Um, if you saw convincing evidence that there was uh, a flavor that was basically like only it was like cocoa puffs and it was like basically only being consumed by children that it had contributed to a massive increase in terms of like kids being addicted to um, tobacco products and nicotine. Would you think that like still we can't take it off the table or even in a, like an extreme sort of edge case situation like that? This is a moot point because I'm in fa- I'm in favor of banning kids having these things. So even in that situation, but enforce the laws, enforce it. That that's the issue. If if there's an issue here, a lot of kids are doing it. I don't think kids should be able to do any flavor because my um, you said you're open to if there's like massive carcinogens and it's not safe, then you're okay with that being regulated. So you're saying like there is a level of harm that would make it okay for this to be banned. Why doesn't your argument, why doesn't your argument apply there? Well, it's like, well, if the fucking fucking adults want to buy the like carcinogen killer, why not? Because there's regulation and banning I do put in two separate categories. And so there's a certain amount of regulation that I think could be reasonable. I think having to wear a seatbelt when you're in the car is reasonable, Mm -hmm. right? But 
it crosses a line to me when it goes to banning. And if they're banning whole, whole groups of flavors, I just think that's fucking gross. And if there's an issue with kids, then come up with better laws to stop the kids from doing it and actually fucking enforce it. But again, why wouldn't your same argument apply to like, you know, it's has way too, like whatever amount of carcinogens in it, but it's labeled on the product. Why wouldn't it apply there of like, well, if people want to have it available, then you can't, you can't just ban that. Cause the point is not, People are not taking things, th- these things to die. That's not why they're taking it. That's mm-hmm. a side effect and it's something that might happen. Mm-hmm. So if we can do something to make it less terrible for you while still maintaining the integrity of having a product that's doing the thing you want it to do, mm-hmm. then I think that's the ideal scenario. Right, but so the argument would be... So here, I'll give it crocodile. So, crocodile. So, I don't want crocodile to be legal. Okay. But so I want opioid pills to be legal. The argument would be that the flavors can be more you know, appealing to kids, that there is a harm done there. And that's why they would say this is appropriate to regulate, just as your example of, like, the carcinogens. I don't buy their argument, though. Even even if you say, even if you argue, you know, it's as low as 40% of the market for this flavor vape Mm -hmm. uh, is adults and 60% is kids, I say, okay, well, make sure those 60% don't get it, but don't ban it for the 40%. I'm biased. I smoke shit like this. Yeah. There's going to come a day where they want to ban this. That, and they yeah. can fuck off when they try to do that. They can fuck off. Like, it's just, it's super obnoxious. There's all these things that they can do to improve people's lives. And they never do shit that's actually flat out good. They have to cross the line into just being authoritarian nannies. Like, I don't do that because but that's not good for again, you. Fuck I, off. This is the argument that I don't buy, though, because this wasn't the state. It was the voters who were yeah, like, but this is the state what we carried want. It out. The state carried out the will of the, the voters. The will of the voters. Yeah, but like they I said, should. there's a difference between will of the voters when they're taking away rights and will of the voters when they're not taking away rights. I think and this is a I rights issue. I don't see uh, that. And that's just our fundamental. Okay, I don't see that there is like a fundamental right to like a whatever flavored cigarette. It, it's as simple as this. Should an adult be able to put in their body whatever they want to put in their body as long as they're not hurting anybody else? Yes. And they still can. They can still smoke. But not the one that they actually like. And I think that if voters in the state feel like that regulation is a a net health benefit and what they want in terms of their stores, then that's okay. So why shouldn't they be able to ban all these processed foods and junk foods? Let's say there's a vote and 70% of the population says fucking ban Twinkies. What do you think? I mean, honestly, I'm, I wouldn't have a problem with. Hell no. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a problem with like, some of this shit is terrible for you. you It's not your business. If you have voters who are like, you know what, let's have lower sugar, uh, lower sugar percentage in the soda. I didn't ask you about that. I asked you about banning Twinkies. That's what I asked you about. I didn't ask you about regulated to lower the sugar percentage. I asked you about banning Twinkies. Listen, if 63% of California voters want to fucking ban Twinkies, I don't really care. Fuck that. And see, this is why people get pissed (laughs) at California and get annoyed with California because the, the, the view that people have of like California, which is a democratic state, very liberal state, they look at them and they view them as like people looking down their nose at everybody else like, I'm going to control what you do in your life because I, I think I'm better and I can decide these things. It's like, just mind your fucking business. Just mind your business. Nobody in, in Mississippi is going to try to stop me from eating a Twinkie, and they're right about that. I want a fucking Twinkie. 63% of voters in that state want these to be regulated. Don't care. The Supreme care. Court says you can regulate, not ban. I think it's the right line. That's the crux. Okay, we'll end on this. Um, uh, uh, an area of half agreement. From a legal perspective, I don't think the decision the court made was crazy. From a legal perspective. Yeah. But uh, 
I do see an argument on the other side of it, even legally speaking, but basically what they decided is you banning the flavored cigarettes does fall more under the category of regulation than banning. That's how, that's basically what their conclusion was. And this is a very corporate-friendly court, too, by the way, that sided this way, so... It's yeah. actually surprising. The one time they didn't, they didn't side with a corporation when they fucking should have. <laughs> Good <laughs> Thank job. you, SCOTUS. Come take away more stuff from me. What else do you want to ban? And I, take I away am actually people? surprised they didn't back up the tobacco companies on this one, but there you go. Anyway, there's a nice, healthy debate for you guys. Yes. All right. Looking forward to talking to Coffeezilla about all things scam, including SBF. Let's get to it. Coffeezilla, great to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be back, I guess, with the with the new co-host yeah, with you, Crystal. That's right. That's I know right. it's a little weird because we're on the Breaking Point set, but it's a different show. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> we're glad to have you. Um, we have a little bit more time with you than I got with you the other day. So that being said, um, we're going to dive into all the SPF stuff. But I would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. I would love for you to explain to me, like, how did you start into this niche? niche? How long have you had the channel? What made you interested in sort of exposing a variety of frauds and con men? Yeah. uh, So I kind of got interested in scams in high school and in college. And then when I started my YouTube channel, I kind of went down that rabbit hole. I mean, my mom got diagnosed with cancer when I was in high school. She's fine. But I I watched her kind of get go down this grifter rabbit hole of all these alternative health scams. Mm. And I didn't really know what I was looking at 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 the time. Uh, I was just like, wow, this is so weird. We're we're spending all this money on these kind of dubious treatments like colloidal silver or like you know the whole house smelled like garlic at one point because she had been convinced by some guy you know on tv or on the internet that you know garlic was going to treat her thyroid cancer in the end it was doctors that treated her thyroid cancer they took out her thyroid and now she's you know she takes uh, thyroid medicine and she's perfectly fine but i could see like there was a path where she chose not to do this not to go with doctors, not trust doctors, because a large part of the pitch when you're pitching alternative health is, well, look how bad regular health is. Like, look how bad far, big pharma is. And for all its faults, by the way, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to stump for big pharma, but um, for all their faults, they're sort of the best we have. And then I went to college and I like my a lot of my friends got caught up with all these MLMs, multi-level marketing. Uh, which if for people who don't know, it's like sort of this pyramid scheme thing where you have to recruit your friends and everyone's saying that you're going to make money. Every, the whole pitch is you're going to get rich quick and no one really gets rich that quick or really at all. So after that, um, I graduated with an engineering degree. I got into YouTube. I was doing some other stuff, but this like love, uh, not love, but like preoccupation, maybe uh, like interest in scams, um, never left me. And so I saw all these get-rich-quick scheme guys targeting young men at a time, and I guess I was in that demographic where I would see these ads like, oh, you can make all this money really quick, just buy my course for $2,500. And I was just like, this is obviously ridiculous. This reminds me of the multi-level marketing stuff. It reminds me of the alternative health stuff. So I started covering that beat, and I just um, I noticed almost immediately that the impact was pretty amazing because nobody was really – covering it at the time and i noticed right away it wasn't like a views thing it was just the response from the audience was incredible and i would hear from the victims and all that stuff and really felt like it was a a niche that nobody was covering and like really it felt like there was really value in covering um just beyond any kind of views thing i just thought it was important work so i kind of dove headfirst into that with my channel coffee solo which has been around for a few years now and uh it's kind of grown from there like 
I've done all sorts of stuff. I've kind of pivoted into crypto because I think there's even more scams, even more grifters in crypto. Uh, but fundamentally, it's the same thing. People promise a dream. It's ultimately not true. And using a little common sense and like if you reason your way through it, you can usually figure that out. So I, I try to expose these guys, uh, these grifters, these con men in the hopes that, you know, while the SEC and, and the government is figuring out how to regulate this stuff, how to crack down on this stuff, hopefully we can add a little social cost to scamming scamming people, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll get back to crypto in a minute. And by the way, I highly recommend everybody check out CoffeeZilla's channel. He's doing by far and away, in my opinion, the best work uh, on this issue. Um, but to your alternative healthcare thing, we're actually very similar on that because, uh, so my father was diagnosed uh, a long time ago with lung cancer. And um, instead of going to like, you know, a proper doctor, well, one issue was he didn't really have health insurance. But uh, beyond that, instead of going to a proper doctor, he, uh, he kept going to a chiropractor. And the chiropractor made the argument like, oh, yeah, if your back hurts, it's okay. We'll work that out. Just keep coming back. But it turned out that the pain was actually a tumor. And then, you know, I researched more about uh, uh, chiropractic medicine. And, you know, there, there's some, like, real fundamentalist chiropractors. And they believe in this uh, idea of what's called subluxation, which I know sounds very fancy. But the, the bottom line of that is they claim every ailment anybody has is because their spine is not in alignment that their spine is, like, curved or whatever. So it's a total quack nonsense. And so we have a, a similar thing going on there because uh, I felt the same kind of urge that you just described where it's like I wanted to sort of shake my dad out of it, and I couldn't. And a lot of it, you know, stemmed from – I mean, he rationalized going to the chiropractor over the doctor. Um, but, yeah, I've always had a, sort of a similar interest in scams and how these things take root and how, unfortunately, it, you know, in many instances people – it becomes almost like – the default perspective where like most people could think there's some legitimacy in what is effectively a scam. So that brings me back full circle to crypto here because there's a question we asked Matt Stoller and he had a very hardcore answer of like the whole thing's the whole fucking thing's a scam. And, you know, Crystal yeah. knows my take on it. I, I was kind of agnostic on it. I understood some of the arguments for it. I never pulled the trigger on it and that I never got involved in crypto. Um, but with what happened with Sam Bankman Fried and FTX, do you view this as a harbinger of things to come or, you know, like take CZ over at Binance? What's your take on him? Like, is that all? Is he also involved in a scam thing or is it? No, he's the more legitimate wing of crypto. Um, let me try to, like, piece that apart. So I guess I can give you my opinion on crypto, maybe, but also uh, CZ as well. So, yeah, CZ owns the largest crypto exchange. And, you know, it's just hard to know these things uh, way ahead of time. I mean, what you can look at is what is their level of transparency? Well, now they're doing this proof of reserves thing. But the whole problem is, like, showing how much money you have is not that interesting when we don't know how much money you owe, right? Because you could have $5 billion, it sounds like, well, that's a lot. But you, if you owe $8 billion, well, now you're insolvent and everyone should take their money out, right? So there's there's some open questions about Binance. There are a lot of rumors circ circling actually as we speak. So it's a little bit um, weird to talk about at this time. But what I'll say about him is, I mean, I mean, he seems like slightly different than SBF, but a lot of people thought SBF was safe before. Before it all went under. So I, I, I mean, this is why I think there just needs to be more regulation, period. The fact that these companies can basically operate functionally in the dark with very little oversight to me is pretty insane. And, and I should say some of these companies have U.S. branches, which are slightly more regulated, but I still definitely do not think it's enough. 
I think um, consumers clearly need to be protected in cases like this because things like SBF just affect so many people. I wonder if I can speak to the crypto point real quick, Kyle. Please uh, do. Is that okay? Please do, yeah. Okay. So my, my thoughts on crypto, like, I've been pretty uh, kind of like you, sort of agnostic about it. I mean, I own a little bit of crypto just so I know how it works. Um, and I do think there's some value in it. The whole question is like, what is that value? I, I feel like the people who say it's all a scam, well, it is technology is in some ways inert. And so what they're really saying is the technology is not that interesting, which is a fair point. But when you look at like currency, I think more than anything, if I don't know if you guys ever like send wire transfers abroad, like this is my biggest, what I think is going to be the biggest use case for crypto is just faster international payment transfers, um, which I know sounds like not a lot, but you know, I have two employees and we, I spend a lot of money on like payment processor fees. There's this entire wire bank, like wire system, which just costs a lot of money to operate. I just think quicker, better, faster always wins. And I think I've used some cryptos, which are quicker, better, faster than um, than the alternative, which is like just like sending regular fiat. So I will say I think a lot of this stuff will center around stable coins, like actual stable coins like USDC, things like that. And basically it's like a digitizing of fiat currency where instead of being totally revolutionary, essentially I can just pay my employee in like London, for example, and it, instead of it going to him in the next couple of days or instead of me paying some big processing fee, I have to pay like 25 cents to send him, you know, a few thousand dollars or something like that. Which country so that was I think it, could be like an actual use case of crypto. Sorry. Which country ahead, was it that embraced crypto as like their national currency? And El Salvador, this, right? Yeah. Was it El Salvador? And it was for El this ex- Salvador. exact reason of like a lot of the um, money in their economy comes from international remittances, many of it coming from the U.S. Yes. The thought was this would be a frictionless way for this money to come in without these fees being stripped out. And yet, I mean, it hasn't worked there whatsoever. Part, I mean, one of the reasons is because the valuation is so volatile. Another reason is very, it's at this point, you know, very complicated. It's not obvious how people um, deal with it. People don't feel like this is safe or stable whatsoever. Even some of the so-called stable coins have ended up like completely collapsing ultimately. So thus far, even like the best use case scenario for it really hasn't worked out. Yeah, listen, hey, it's a bad time to go to bat for crypto, okay? I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to stop, like, the same thing with, like, the big farming thing. It's like, I'm not defending, I'm just, I'm just giving you a case. Um, it, like, what I'll say there is, like, I think Bitcoin is a bad transmission of value. I mean, because, fundamentally because it can be so volatile. So you don't want to put your life savings that you're sending to your grandma at home in Bitcoin when it might go up 30%, it might go down 30%, and you don't know which. Um, that it would be the case for stable coins, but as you said, well, a lot of the stable coins have blown up. I mean, you could point to the fact that they were algorithmic, but this is sort of the problem is that because everything's the wild, wild west, there's no rules of the road right now. People are just ad hoc creating all these central, essentially Ponzi schemes and uh, they're getting away with it. And nobody's kind of getting is in trouble for it right now. So that's a big thing I talk about on my shows. I'm just like, how are these people not in jail right now? Like so many people do the most outlandish stuff, make millions of dollars from by basically stealing from people and the government's nowhere to be seen. I mean, it took something like FTX with billions of dollars on the line for them to finally, you know, sort of start cracking down on some of this stuff. That doesn't say it hasn't happened before, but 
I, I usually always see the guys that get away, and it uh, it's a little annoying for sure. Yeah. So uh, I covered a story yesterday about CZ and Binance, and uh, Business Insider was reporting that uh, there's basically a run on Binance. Two billion dollars was uh, withdrawn, and uh, Binance temporarily temporarily halted any more withdrawals. Um, and I know they have a separate investigation ongoing about what was it, money laundering or something like that, or illegal payments, something to that effect. It's a multi-billion you know, dollar investigation into that. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm very, I'm just interested in if we're going to see a continuation of the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX fiasco or something similar to it with Binance and with potentially other crypto exchanges and other cryptocurrencies. Because, um, I mean, it's like I want to say that is going to happen, but I, I don't really know. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it is a different situation. Like, could it happen? Maybe. But it is a very different situation in that a lot of the reason FTX failed was their trading firm that was borrowing money and l- then losing that money, right? Um, with Binance, I don't think, from my everything from my knowledge, they don't have some quant firm on the side that's trying to make tons of money or anything like that. They are just a crypto exchange. And crypto exchanges tend to be actually very profitable. So, like, my thought sort of with this is, if they don't have the money, well, how'd they lose it? I mean, it would almost blow my mind. Um, and as well, you can see on-chain, like, there's on-chain data for what Binance has sort of in the bank. And yes, $2 billion was withdrawn, but it wasn't like, it's not like they're nearing zero in their cold wallets or anything like that. So I would, personally, I would be very surprised if Binance went under. But um, at the same time, I guess I wouldn't be shocked. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Like, in crypto, that's sort of how it goes. It's like so, so there's there is almost no never a time where anyone could not blow up. Yeah, there's no Alameda there's no here Alameda. that could be like okay. the explanation for yeah for why it would go under. Um, it's a little bit different. Yeah, it's a little bit different. You mentioned that you were the target demographic for a lot of, especially the like crypto and NFT scams. And uh, we actually got a question about this at Breaking Points that I've been thinking a lot about of like, why has it been young men predominantly that have been vulnerable to these schemes? And I wonder what you think about that. I think maybe it's young men are like often, I don't know if this is too uh generalized but i i when i talk to people i I think young men tend to want to be kind of get rich get wealth as like a proxy for status and or maybe just get wealth because they want to be rich and oftentimes they feel like the regular american dream has failed them and they're constantly being told that by the way it's the same pitch that alternative health people do like against big pharma that get rich quick scheme people do against the american dream they go like hey the 9 to 5 is dead you shouldn't be waiting for this the internet has changed everything first of all your pension's not there waiting for you which has some truth to it you know just like saying big pharma has done some bad things it has some truth to it mm-hmm. but then they pitch you some alternative snake oil solution that doesn't have any truth to it they go oh you know just work for jeff bezos doing fulfillment by Amazon and you're going to get rich. And to that, I always have to say, listen, Jeff Bezos did not get rich by uh, giving you plenty of profit margin. You know, like it's like kind of this crazy idea that you're going to get rich doing fulfillment by Amazon, you know, working part time. That's like, by the way, a common get rich quick scheme thing like that. So I, I think a lot of it is is sort of a loss of trust in our institutions to some extent that makes men vulnerable. And I also think it's just like guys 
to some extent are a little bit lost. They don't know where to go. And um, and yeah, I guess they're looking for, for something else because they're like, well, if the American dream isn't going to work for me, if I can't work for a company for 40 years, what else could? And maybe I should, if, if it's not going to be stable, maybe I should make money as fast as humanly possible. So they get into this like grift area and a lot of people lose a lot of money, waste a lot of time with these bozos who basically get rich off selling the dream. I, I like the way you put that about selling the dream because it's definitely not like, oh, young men are just like uniquely vulnerable to being scammed. It's just the particular dream that they're being sold that meets like, you know, what society has told them it means to be a man and like the language that's used and like the way that dream is sold. I don't know if you watched, did you watch the uh, docuseries about uh, Lula Rowe? Which is like this multi-level. Oh, you'd like that leggings empire that all of these house moms became obsessed okay. with, and the dream that was sold to them was like you can have independence and like creativity and own your own business, but have total flexibility and be able to be there for your kids and like you know basically you can have it all as the uh, stay-at-home mom. And phenomenally successful in selling this dream and ultimately, like, scamming and ripping off all of these, um, like, Midwestern moms. I think I've seen one episode, but I'm familiar with Lula Rose. So, and, and I'm familiar with those types of um, schemes, too. Like, if you're going to target moms, you go after a different sort of pitch because they're not going to buy into, hey, you're going to get rich super fast. In fact, they don't really even want that. They're like, they're not looking to like get a yacht or a Lamborghini. They want to just take care of their kids and they want to be able to also like spend time with their kids, right? Um, and they're presented with this dilemma where it's like, oh, I can go to work or I can kind of take care of my kids. It's sort of presented at this dichotomy. And along, uh, along comes somebody who says, well, no, you can have it all. And that's sort of what they say with guys too. Yeah, I think you picked up on something exactly, which is you just sell the dream tailored to the specific person. And really, I mean, I know some people look at this and they say like all the time to me, like, like people just need to stop believing this stuff. People need to just stop, you know, getting scammed. And it's really hard because fundamentally they're preying on desperation, which you cannot really, it's not really a matter of IQ. It's not really a matter of like, oh, you're just too dumb to not see what it is. It's desperation kind of overrides your critical thinking faculties. It's like when you get, um, going back to sort of the health stuff, like if you get some incurable cancer and then someone comes along and says, I have XX pill that, um, you know, will cure your cancer. You'll pay any dollar for that if you believe them. Right. Yeah. If you believe that they're telling the truth, you will pay any amount of money. And so desperation ends up allowing really predatory marketing to happen. And so when you see people at these dead end jobs, they're sort of faced with this future that's uncertain, boring. Um, there's not interesting, not engaging. And it's like that makes the perfect mark for these grifters. And in a sense, the, the more brazen and extreme the lie the more believable it is. This is something we've talked about before, but like I remember back during the Obamacare debate, Republicans would talk about, uh, you know, oh, they have death panels and they're trying to kill your grandma, which sounds like like an absolutely absurd claim. But what happened was they repeated that over and over and over and over and over. And then in the mind of your average American, they thought, well, they're probably not trying to kill my grandma, but this thing definitely ain't good. 
So it's like, you know, it's almost like a negotiation tactic. You, you stake a position that's so extreme, like to your point on the whole cancer thing, like take this pill and, you know, it'll cure you and you'll become, you'll look like Brad Pitt or whatever. And people go, hey, even if it doesn't do all that, if it does 5% of that, then yeah, there's maybe gotta be something there's gotta to be it, There's got to be something right? to this. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely nailed it. That's that's like the classic technique. And what they'll also do is like they'll kind of sell you both sides of it. And and then you can just like kind of pick what you believe. Like a lot of these guys will be very flat. The guys, the people who target sort of guys, especially, they'll get, you know, fancy cars, do do all this stuff and present sort of some lifestyle marketing that says, oh, you'll be rich like me tomorrow. And then simultaneously in the same breath, they'll go, this isn't a get rich quick scheme, guys. Hey. You got to work right. hard, you know, yeah. and so yeah. you can kind of choose what you want to believe from that. And then they're sort of like covering their bases both ways. They present it like you're going to get rich quick. And then at the very end, they're like, hey, this isn't a get rich quick scheme. Don't think I'm some kind of scammer or something like that. Uh, so, so, so let me yeah, ask you a lot this. of schemes. Let me ask you this. Do uh, these multi-level marketing companies. Do they exist in sort of a legal gray area? Because there's a number of products that I've been like, oh, what's that? And you were like, oh, this is uh, whatever company. It's a multi-level marketing scam. So <laughs> I actually like, Wait, have, what? This is just casual? All over so the place? I also watched a big documentary about like Amway, um, which is sort of the, you know, one of the original like multi-level marketing scams. And the answer is yes. Wow. And basically they bought off all of the relevant po- politicians to make sure that they could technically operate these totally scam operations. And, you know, they use, like, the way that they sort of, like, calculate legally, whether it's a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme or whatever, they have found these legal loopholes for themselves so that they can technically legally operate a pyramid scheme. Um, But, yeah, they just bought off the relevant officials, in particular in the Republican Party during, like, the Reagan era, and then they were able to to do these things. But some of these products are good, which is the crazy part, right? Like, there's the nail thing that you use. I don't don't want to— Uh, maybe I do want to shout the company out and destroy them. <laughs> but it's like they have a good product. It's like an alternative to nail polish. Well, but then, that, like, they made it a scam also, which well, is kind of weird. And I wonder if what your thoughts are on this, um, Coffee, because it's like it seems to me like there are different levels of scamitude here. Like some things like the LuLaRoe thing just ended up just being total, totally fraudulent, effectively. And um, but yeah. in the beginning, people really did genuinely like these ugly ass leggings. OK, right. Yeah. Um I use these uh, nail polish strips from Color Street that I genuinely love, but it is also multi-level marketing. So I'm like, where does this fit in the— I worked the, for one of the companies. Where does this fit in the ecosystem? Because I really genuinely like the product, and there is nowhere else to get it. Coffee, so, do you know Cutco Knives? Oh, that was yeah. A, that was a multi-level marketing oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Were you a salesman for them? I was for like seven <laughs> seconds. My sister was, too. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know at the time. I was a teenager. I'm thinking like, oh, cool, I got a yeah, new job. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, you made a great point, Crystal. Like, yeah, that politicians have been bought off for this for, for some time. And sort, sort of how they define it is like they're like, well, a, a pyramid scheme is, you know, where you're always relying on recruitment over a product. MLMs are where you rely on a product and you have like the recruitment element. And I think the FTC, they have some fuzzy language where they say something to the effect of, you know, not all, some MLMs are pyramid schemes, but not all 
MLMs are pyramid schemes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this weird distinction, which allows a lot of MLMs to say, well, we're just like the good one, right? Um, and I, I think to your point, like, I don't think as a consumer, you have to feel bad. Sometimes these, these companies do have a product. Usually those products just end up overpriced because the business model of MLMs is like you pay all the way up the chain of like salespeople, which actually is really bad for profit margins. So what it ends up creating is most MLM products are overpriced to like generic competitors. But in the case where they actually have a unique product, sometimes that is the only place to get it. You shouldn't feel bad about that. The people you should feel bad for are the re- people getting sold the lie, the recruitment lie. I mean, it's like right. it says it doesn't matter if you have a good product. The whole problem is, is that you're bringing people in as salespeople with a false depiction of their likelihood of success, with a false like lifestyle advertising. And yep. these MLM companies keep getting in trouble over and over for over promising the stuff. Because when you actually look at the data, so like some of these companies are required to disclose. Um, I don't know if they're still required to disclose. Like they were lobbying to try to get that like order uh, removed where they had to actually disclose how many people in their company make money. And it's atrocious. Like something like 90% make less than minimum wage Mm. or make like nothing. 98% make less than minimum wage. And then like the top 1% makes a very good salary. So if you just look at the numbers, it – the scheme kind of becomes really obvious. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing with LuLaRoe is yep. it ended up being that the way to actually make money wasn't to sell the leggings. It was to bring in the greater fool. Yes. Right. And that was how you built yes. your like LuLaRoe empire. So if you were one of the women who got in early and you had all the like people under you, then you were maybe going to be okay but yeah, it was just the the sort of greater fool theory. You had to keep recruiting new people into this fake false dream that was, you know, full of lies and very fraught. And you had all kinds of people whose like savings were spent and lives collapsed and, and marriage ruins and all kind of lazy with the product too. And the yeah, the product was increasing. The leggings terrible. had mold on them and smelled stuff. bad yeah. and whatever. Anyway, so I mean, but I think we're- that's sort of typical of how these things turn out. Well, were they required to buy leggings as well as part of like being yes. a, the top tier? Yeah, because that is really common. So one of the things is in order to make it appear like they're focused on the product, you have to have a volume of sales. But frequently, like I said, because the product tends to be overpriced and if it's a big enough product, someone will just copy it for way cheaper and build it in some factory like on mass um, and then just sell it with like Facebook ads or something like that. Because of that, oftentimes the recruiters have to buy up huge portions of the product and there's not actually a demand for it. So they're like creating this fake demand thing, right. which that again goes back to like that's a huge scam. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. No, I'm a big critic of multi-level marketing. I mean I think it, it really hurts people. But, you know, uh, just the other day, like my mom like seems to like fall for all this stuff. She was into some like – Korean MLM hair care product. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Listen, I, I mean, I do want to say the nail strips are genuinely good. I genuinely like them. I can vouch for that. I can vouch for that. I've seen her. I've seen them. She's I'm, put them I, on. on right the now. colors are nice. Like, it's kind of, but that's what I said to Crystal. I was like, this is so weird to me that they have a product that is genuinely a good product. Yeah. But they decided, let's add a scam on top of it. Why not? Right. Well, because, I mean, I guess. You, if you're at the very top, you can get phenomenally rich that way, and it's all basically rigged to your yeah, but benefit. Couldn't they have gotten rich even without 
the scam part of it? Maybe. Like, maybe you would have made a little bit less money, but I guess I don't, just don't have that mind thing where it's like, you know, you're a billionaire, you have $5 billion, and you're like, I need six. I need the I don't six billion. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw, because this uh, just dropped yesterday, but you probably did see it. The SEC charged a bunch of dudes with um, effectively a pump and dump scheme where they were social media influencers. They built up these big followings being like, dude, you're a pussy if you don't buy this stock and I'm all in and your bank account's going to be huge and we're going to the moon. And then using their social media, you know, influence, the stock, in fact, would go up. They would sell out of the position, of course, not disclose that they're out of it altogether. And then the thing collapses. I mean, it's classic pump and dump, but you're using the modern internet ecosystem in order to enable this. I mean, how common is that sort of thing? And how much has YouTube and Twitter and Twitch and Discord and whatever sort of changed the game in terms of uh, con artists? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely made it easier to be a con artist. Like, I, I followed it a little bit. I read, like, I read a little bit of the complaint what was kind of crazy in that case is how brazen some of these guys were. They have them on tape being like, we are robbing these people, <laughs> which is just a, a crazy statement. And then one of the guys on Twitter says, S-E-C, like suck these nuts or something. Like just like completely <laughs> crazy. He said that publicly. He said it publicly. And, and then like now it's funny to like go back and look at his tweets about the SEC. He's basically taunting the SEC for years. And then finally they get him. Um, I mean, it's my opinion. These guys should be locked up. I, I, I think it's crazy. I think white collar crime is historically like under prosecuted because mm. I don't know why judges view it as very sympathetic. But like the guy who robs the corner store because there's a gun involved, even though nobody might have been hurt. All of a sudden, we got to give that guy a lot of years in jail. But like the guy who does way worse, steals from grandma, steals from mom, steals from pension funds. That's fine. We don't, we, we very, uh, it's very under prosecuted and under sentenced. So uh, my opinion is all these white collar guys, like they know what they're doing as evidence in the, um, in the complaint. Mm. They clearly know what they're doing. They, they're, they're robbing people. And so I think it should be treated as an actual robbery. Uh, um, because that's, that is fundamentally what it is. So that stuff bothers, like that really gets, kind of gets me going. I, I usually am pretty calm about this stuff, but. The, the penny stock stuff, all that kind of stuff is uh, really annoying. And what's frustrating is, as you said, Crystal, great point. Like Twitter, all these different platforms have made it easy to build up these followings based on nearly nothing. Like you you just have to have like sort of a nice car you post with. You got to kind of present this aspirational lifestyle. You got to say you're this genius trader. And then, um, you know, you can make tons of money just promoting these terrible coins that you have a position in um, and then sell immediately. And crypto is the new wave of that. Like, I, I think these guys were penny stocks, right? Yeah. If I'm not yep. mistaken. But I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so crypto is the new version of this. People made millions of dollars doing this. And in some cases, it's like more provable than the SEC stuff or uh, the stock stuff. But I've done this before. I've proven that some people like just using blockchain evidence, you'll time their tweets with their wallet and you can see they sold right as they're saying this and you can present this evidence but because there's no laws on the books it's hard to get actual prosecution going yeah and and, you know to your point and you've made this point too crystal a lot of people came to crypto after the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and great recession because they thought clearly traditional finance is a scam so let me try something else something Something different something new something with promise yeah (laughs) Yeah. but then it became ultimately more you know more scammy yeah 
Yeah. I mean, that is a core point that you're making here is like they sort of prey on societal failures. So like with Big Pharma, you see some manifest failures there and you can say like, well, this is a crock. But what you're not realizing is that the alternative medicine stuff is even less regulated. That's even worse. Yeah, that's even worse. Yeah. I mean, it's there's at least with pharma, there are some there is some scrutiny. Yeah, Yeah. you have to have some clinical trials like there is a flawed process, at least in place. With these supplements and whatever, you don't even know that what they say is in the pill is actually in the pill. That's right. That's right. They've, there's been studies on this for no, the supplements. Yeah. You're exactly right. I mean, one thing that bothers me about like sort of um, some like anti-establishment figures that go after big pharma so much is some of those guys sell supplements. And it's like, oh, so you're going to say that the big pharma industry has a profit incentive? The supplement industry has a huge profit incentive and nobody ever criticizes them. And they make way wilder claims with flimsy, like way less evidence. I mean, usually no evidence. Um, so it's kind of this crazy crazy situation where like you know big pharma has done terrible thing like they've like they have tried they have profit motives that's all true but it's like at the end of the day they they usually have scientists they have research studies they have clinical trials which is an absolute nightmare to get through but for good reason because at the end of the day when somebody's selling you a pill you want them to have to back up their claims with evidence and um yeah so so don't get me started on that. That what? it's really frustrating. And the 2008 crisis, as you said, is like a great other proxy for that for money, where people just felt like disenfranchised by the the elites. And I think, I think governments do such poor jobs at sending public signals to like public signals that would reinforce trust. Instead, they always seem to betray trust. Like mm. the. The feeling at, in 2008 was we will always bail out the big guy and we will never bail out the little guy. That mm-hmm. was the public signal we sent, right? And yeah. this is also the problem with like some like uh, – some reason that people uh, don't like public health is public health sometimes lies. And they don't – they're not the best at like getting that track record right. So then people point to that forever as like, like we can't trust them at all. Well, of course that's not true, but – it just seems to me like the government does a very poor job of making the like common person feel like we've got your back. And instead, it's always like the big guys in power always seem to be getting a pass. And that's really frustrating because it's hard to build trust in a system that does that. What do you think is the responsibility of a creator to vet the products that they are selling? Because we'll Ooh, see. Good question. We'll see even, you know, some progressive creators who are like corporate skeptical and they're doing direct ad reads, and um, that's something like we don't do. I wouldn't. No. I wouldn't do um, for precisely this reason. Like, I don't want to be responsible for having to actually make sure this product is what it says it is, that it's safe, that it's real, that they're not lying, that it's not a scam, et cetera, et cetera. But what is your view of like the responsibilities on the individual creators with regards to the things that they are directly selling? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. And obviously, everyone has to make a living, and I don't begrudge anyone for uh, for trying to do that. But I think a lot of people underestimated with like the rise of social media, just how different promoting certain products are in terms of the need for responsibility. And I think it just changes depending on the product. If you're selling like uh, a pair of headphones, right? That can only be such a scam, right? The worst case scenario is that they send you some kind of a lemon or you're saying it sounds great. It actually doesn't sound that great, right? Mm. Uh, but 
it gets a little different when you're selling anything health related, anything financial related, mm-hmm. because the the deceptive marketing can be so much more predatory for the reasons we just talked about where desperation comes in. And, you know, you get this inelastic demand effect where people, if they believe you, will just sort of pay any price. If I believe you're going to make me rich or make me healthy, I will pay you any price to do that if I don't have health or I don't have wealth. I wouldn't do that for headphones because they'd just be like, all right, I'll just get some other pair of headphones if it's like that, if it's like a really scammy price point or if there's bad reviews. So, I mean, I definitely think, look, obviously it'd be great if people vetted every product. Um, and I personally don't take sponsorships for this reason. It's, it's, it's a little too, especially in my position, I can't, <laughs> you know, I just sort of can't do that. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, the, more like aligned your product is with health or wealth you need to be really careful because mm. ultimately that's where people can get the most hurt you can do the most damage and just saying i didn't know really isn't enough at that point where people have lost tons of money or people you know have bought some health scam or something like that it, I, I just think that's sort of unforgivable so that's like my bright red line for me yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting i never thought of it that them. way yeah. like the you know like health and wealth, that those are the two specific areas where you got to be extra careful. The way I look at it, and again, Crystal and I, we've, you know, talked about this quite a bit. Um, I mean, I've been doing this for a decade now, and I've never once had a conversation with any advertiser. And honestly, I, I take I take pride in that. You know, I, I want to keep the product sort of pure. I have no ethical issues with uh, basically the way the, the ads work on YouTube, because you have Google and AdSense are effectively a buffer. There's like a wall of separation between me and anybody who wants to advertise on my channel. So that I don't really have any ethical issue with. But outside of that, we, we just raise basically through small dollar donations. People pay five bucks a month or two bucks a month or whatever it may be. I have a Patreon and we have our, our Substack for this show. Uh, but I guess my standard for other people, because I agree with you in that I don't expect everybody to, to do what I do. I think that what we're doing is sort of next level. It's like we're going the extra mile to make sure, like, right. let's be ethical with it. And but, we're I, and ideologically, we're trying to be consistent as well. Correct. Yeah, I mean, but I, I don't fault anybody. I, like, the way I look at it is, if you're going to promote a product, you should actually like the product and use the product. That's sort of my default. Yeah. Because, you know... Then you can't, like, if the person actually likes it and they actually use it, then it's like, yeah, why not? It it aligns with, you know, who they are. But what you see oftentimes is a lot of people end up promoting things that are just total garbage. There's been two big scandals recently. Uh, There was the established title scandal. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like they tell you you can become a lord or a lady in Scotland and, you know, you just got to pay. And then they do plant a tree or something. And it was very weird. And then, of course, they come to find out that was kind of bullshit. And then there was also the... uh, I'm going to butcher this name, but like Kamakoto uh, knives, knives or something like that, yeah. where um, they claim like this is really high quality Japanese steel. And then somebody did a deep dive on it. And that's not true at all. In fact, it's super cheap steel. And a lot of people were pushing these things, people that I, I like. And it's like, just yes, for the love of God, only push the things that you actually like and use. Mm. You make a great point. By the way, shout out to Scott Schaefer. He's the one who created those videos. Mm, Uh, But I think if a lot of people had actually bought the product or used the product, you're exactly right. I think it would have been a little different. I think a lot of those, um, you could avoid a lot of problems just by kind of using the product. I think you made a great point, Kyle. So let's dig into uh, SBF, the reason we're all gathered here today. Um, (laughs) 
When when were you first onto this guy? What were the telltale signs? What made you take a little bit of a closer look? So I saw a little bit of it six like six months before the collapse. He went on uh, Matt Levine's podcast, Odd Lots, and he said that Ponzi schemes were basically great. So I I made a whole video about that, which now it like has blown up way more now that the collapse has happened because everyone's like, oh, he called it, he called it. Um, honestly, I saw a little bit of it then but even then there was so much like sort of love of sbf going on where everyone was saying this guy's the smartest guy in the room and i i try to listen to you know everyone in crypto i try to listen to the most sort of uh well-established people who i don't think are shilling crypto just for the sake of it and i thought i saw even those people were saying oh this guy's like too smart you know etc so i said well you know maybe i'm not getting everything so in that podcast i was very skeptical but ultimately I didn't say, hey, it's all a scam. Obviously, if I had, I'd have been a genius. Of course, <laughs> it would have been right. Uh, but leading up to the collapse, I had a friend who goes by Dirty Bubble Media on Twitter. He's like uh, this anonymous guy who looks into all these, uh, all these exchanges. And he goes, hey, I looked at their balance sheet. The balance sheet just had been leaked. It looks like there's basically nothing backing this. It's just a bunch of vapor tokens. So he sent me that. I read it. I go, you're totally right. This thing is a total crock. So I started posting on Twitter, like, is Alameda Research, you know, insolvent? And I started posting the reasons. And about 24, 48 hours later, the whole thing went bust. And I, I remember, like, I actually um, – I told people about this. Like, I, I told people who had promoted FTX about that they might go bust. And so many of them hand-waved me off. They said, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. And um, that was sort of very a very telling experience where people just like were sort of wanting to believe the lie. Mm. It's like even when presented with contradictory evidence, it was so easy to believe in him. And also like there was a monetary reason to believe in him because he was underwriting so much of the crypto industry with – Payments to now we know payments to journalistic companies like the block that was undisclosed. He paid millions of dollars. He paid millions of dollars to mainstream media organizations. I don't want to say who because I, I, I would hate to be wrong about who he paid. But you have there's lists of like several mainstream media corporations that he paid millions of dollars to that ended up covering him favorably. And it's like those people don't want to see the truth about like sort of where his uh what his company was actually doing. And I think that's a huge indictment of sort of our media. And he was he was lying pretty brazenly right before the collapse, saying like, oh, yeah, we can make everybody whole. Everything is OK. We never got gambled with customer funds. It's all yeah. safe. It's all good. He was lying after the collapse. He was lying after the collapse, too. That's what kills me. It's like he was saying, oh, there's this eight billion dollars. We don't know what happened to it. Well, the SEC comes out and says, he, well, he said, like, oh, it's in this stub account. We had this poorly labeled account. The SEC in their complaint says he's the one who made it poorly labeled. Mm. He decided to label it some, like, he, he labeled Alameda's balance as FTX's because he wanted to hide it from lenders. So he was telling people, oh, it was this poorly labeled account. I didn't know about it. He's literally the one who labeled it. Wow. He's the one who, like, put the, allegedly, he's the one who uh, even put it in this separate account so it wouldn't be charged interest. So he's been lying before. He's been lying after. This guy has no credibility left. I mean, he – and I just think he should have shut up after the collapse. I was kind of surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, totally. But now he's in Fox Hill Prison. And, yeah, I, I do not envy him. What do you think about 
<laughs> the branding aspect of this because I mean the the media piece and the puff pieces that definitely gets into the I mean the number of articles of like oh this guy is so smart and his understated genius style I mean all of that seemed very deliberately cultivated and there was that one exchange with a Vox reporter which was one of the outlets by the way that got a bunch of money from him um, that he I guess thought wasn't going to be publicized but where he basically admits like. The political donations to Democrats, the effective altruism, philanthropy, all of these things were effectively just a brand play. It made me think a lot of um, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos mm. because she was similarly very deliberate about cultivating a certain look and affect that she thought would read as credible to investors, read as credible to elites in lieu of, you know, actually having like a, a product that worked. <laughs> she thought she could brand her way into success. And it feels like he had a similar scam and scheme in mind, even after the writing was on the wall for him, even after this thing collapsed, he thought in he thought he could go and play this character with Andrew Ross Sorkin and with George Stephanopoulos and with everyone. There are people who go, oh, he's just this guy who got in over his head and, you know, look look at him out talking to the press. He's so earnest and be able to get, get away with it ultimately. You're absolutely right. Well, I think what's most shocking about it is how well it works. Uh, that's the most alarming thing is that not only was it Elizabeth's home's plan, but she got away with it, right? right. Or at least for a time. Not, it was also SBF's plan, and he also got away with it. I mean, in hindsight, there were so many red flags. Like, he was playing League of Legends while on the phone with investors. Who who does that? Like, <laughs> how, how does anyone take you seriously after you're playing League of Legends? He said, I was famous for it. In other words, people knew about it. So it's just sort of like there was total totally this um, – these obvious red flags in hindsight, but so many of so many people rubber stamped him. And I think also that was helped by the fact that he paid a lot of these organizations. There's some shady stuff that you guys would probably love, like with Sequoia, right? They they had invested all this money with him. So allegedly they put two hundred ten million dollars with, I think, FTX. But what a lot of people don't know, what's lesser known is that Alameda then puts and I might have this backwards, but Alameda then puts 200 million back in Sequoia. So mm. Sequoia pays them $210 million and $200 million flows back the other way, which if it's real venture capital, that's not how it works. The reason you pay somebody money is because they have some better use for it than just sending it back to you. It's because they have some kind of, you know, like some, they need to grow faster. That's why you put money into a company is because you assume like if they have hundreds of millions of dollars more, they can grow 10 times faster, right? But that clearly wasn't the case. They didn't actually need the money because they sent a lot of it back. They invested it back with Sequoia. But there's all this, yeah, so there's all these shady practices going on where I think part of it was a cultivated image, as you said, Crystal, but part of it is he was paying people. There was a lot of underhanded deals behind the scenes. I mean, I don't think it was just a matter of, oh, he had the perfect branding. I think in his case, he greased the wheels with money. If, if CZ didn't do what he did, would the, this wouldn't have all come crashing down when it did, right? Like, the, we, we could still be living under the delusion and the illusion if yes. CZ didn't do what he did, correct? Yeah, you, you know, actually, that dirty bubble media piece was what CZ originally retweeted to make mm. the whole thing go down, um, which is the same time I started talking about it. I think CZ's like taking a weird kind of blame about this. I mean, it's sort of pointing out that the emperor has no clothes and then everyone's like, oh, well, you shouldn't have pointed that out. No, I'm not, the yeah, I'm not blaming him. I'm that, not blaming him. I'm giving him credit, if oh, anything. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. I, I just, I guess I'm responding. Kevin O'Leary was in Congress the other day, um, kind of lambasting CZ. It's like sort of, it's his fault that this thing went down. It's like, no, it's the company's fault for not having customers' funds. Right. And that wasn't going to change anytime soon. Um, I think there is an open question, though, about the Binance thing where there's a question of clawbacks, right? For the people who made money, and Binance was one of the companies that made money. They had an early $100 million stake in um, in FTX. They ended up making like $2 billion from FTX because they got bought out of their position. So the question is, if this was always a fraud, and the SEC seems to allege that it was always a fraud, like since 2020 basically, what does that mean for clawbacks? What does that mean for that billion, the billions of dollars that kind of Binance walked away with? Well, I think that should go back to customers personally. Mm. I think it's sort of ill-gotten gains and it should be clawed back. Now, will, whether it will be, I don't know. The same question is open for campaign finance, right? Well, obviously we know uh, yep. Alameda and FTX donated heavily to both sides, whether you're talking about Ryan Salami or whether you're talking about SBF. What does that mean in terms of terms of clawbacks, especially if some of these campaigns probably spent all those dollars on Facebook ads or whatever it may be? Is there a world in which he actually gets away with the whole thing and, you know, is able to keep the sort of house of cards constructed, weather the storm of the current, you know, crypto collapse and is able to pull this thing off basically indefinitely where, you know, in 20 years time, people are still, go, oh, my God, that's a guy's a genius. He's a pioneer. You know, he's still hobnobbing with politicians. Is there a world in which that happens? I think from what I've seen of scams like this, the the hole only gets bigger. That's the problem. And so it eventually will teeter, like it just fall over because ultimately there's no money left, right? Um, I think it could have gone on a bit longer. It just depends on like the macro environment because a lot of the reason the hole was so big is because for a while, all crypto was just going like this. And so when it's going like this, it's hard not to lose money, but um, it's hard not to make money, excuse me. But when it goes down, the tide goes out, as Warren Buffett would say, like you find out who's swimming naked. Mm. And I, I think FTX was close to that anyways. So the CFTC also filed a complaint alongside the SEC and the FBI. And what they said was that actually SBF had written a blog post back in September saying that Alameda should be wrapped up. You could see that he knew that he was in trouble. Mm. The blog post was titled, We Came, We Saw, We Researched. Um, which is a very euphemistic way to describe what he then says, which is with Alameda, we didn't hedge enough and we lost more than we ever made or ever will make. Mm. That is a shocking admission, especially when he says in the leading months after that in October and November that, hey, we're fine. Assets are fine. Customers are back to one to one. He knew that wasn't the case. So I think he knew the writing was on the wall. CZ sort of just happened to be the final straw. But um, ultimately, this thing was coming crashing down. And whether it was like, you know, a month from then or maybe a year from then, I don't think Alameda was long for this world. And I think, honestly, Sam Bankman fried knew it. He said in that post, he said, we should have shut down a year ago. Mm. So he knew they were on borrowed time. His, um, his posture in the interviews after the collapse of like, who me, bro? I don't understand anything about any of my companies, bro. Right. I feel Wait, like they bought a, a house from my parents. I didn't, I didn't even know that. What? what? <laughs> I, I feel like, uh, and this is all speculation here, but I do feel like 
the uh, the drug use that he was doing, that upper that he was on. And I saw a great video from More Plates, More Dates going through the the specific drug and all the effects of it and all that. I think that may have contributed to his arrogance mm. into thinking like, oh, I could talk my way out of anything. He was basically taking a drug that some people compare to the Limitless drug. You remember the movie Limitless? With, uh, oh, what's his name? I'm blanking on his name. Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper, yeah. It's a drug that basically makes you, like, superhuman. Mm. And this drug is sort of akin to that, in a sense, and he was taking it all the time. Yeah, he would have a patch that would give him 24-hour effects. I do feel like that sort of led to the hubris and the arrogance, and, like, I could talk my way out of this, that perhaps the drug use, you know, may have had something to do with that. Um, but let me ask you this. So I, one of the things that I've seen is uh, the there's a very, like, complex corporate structure, for all these different companies that are associated with FTX and, and Alameda. Um, it, does that concern you at all in terms of actually making the slam dunk case in court? Like, yeah, this was fraudulent. Um, I know that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Coffee, but like they have them dead to rights on wire fraud, right? So then the other question is like, well, what else are you going to get him on? So talk a little bit about that. Do you think that it might be a little harder to prove, you know, perhaps a more far reaching case because of how complex the corporate structure was? Uh, no, because ultimately, I think the court will sort of pierce the corporate veil on that. Uh, ultimately, if you don't respect like corporate boundaries, then the argument can always be made that there was no corporate boundary. Right. And so we shouldn't actually respect this legally. I think that's going to be a clear argument from the uh, from some of these lawyers. Now, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so, so I don't know for sure. But I, I know this like with me personally, like I have a like an LLC. Right. And if I keep my personal bank account right next to my corporate bank account and I, and I don't treat them separately, then someone, if they sue me, they can go, well, actually, there is no corporate thing. It's just me. It, this is all a farce. And then they can sue me personally, right? That's kind of what's going to happen here, I think, because you just have, you have John Ray, the bankruptcy li- liquidator. He says there really was just like four, he calls them silos, which like you can put 64 companies or something like that into. Like there's tons of companies, but he basically says like, there was just basically four silos, and even these silos, there was no boundary between them. Like anybody in any silo could kind of affect the other silos. So because of that, I, I don't think that's going to be a, too much of a challenge just besides kind of explaining some of this stuff. But um, at the same time, I don't think the fraud case is that hard because I think it's much more to do with his public statements, his terms of service, and then what actually happened. He's talked so much that he's – talk to himself into an accounting of events that's going to be very hard to talk himself out of. He's kind of said what happened. That is pretty clearly now from the evidence, not what happened. And so the fraud case is essentially, well, you lied, you you materially misrepresented these things to customers. And then the wire fraud case is, well, you said the money was going here and actually it was going here. And to be honest, he kind of admits this himself. He said, we were sending, we were having FTX customers send their money to Alameda and then Alameda was using their funds. I mean, that's classic wire fraud. Yeah. Well, and also uh, we now know at least one of his top deputies uh, flipped on him, right, and blew the whistle on him. That's right. Ryan Salami, it just came out in the Financial Times that uh, it looks like he was the one who who actually like kind of flipped on some of the top executives. We don't know if, by the way, if SPF's the only one who's going to kind of go down for this. You also have Caroline Ellison in the driver's seat at Alameda. What did she know? I think those are huge questions. And me personally, this is where my skepticism comes in, which is how many heads are going to roll besides the big guy. Mm-hmm. I'm usually skeptical where I think oftentimes like some of this, we I hate to say it, like some of 
the justice system sometimes is like is about sort of optics. Like it's like we want to take down the big guy at all costs. And then sometimes there's like you forget about kind of the smaller player. So it's my hope that the Justice Department doesn't stop with uh, SPF. Clearly, at least Caroline knew. I think a lot of other people knew. Um, and I'm hoping that those people, that's where I'm a little more, it's an open question. Are those people going to go down for this? I certainly hope so. I saw some evidence that perhaps the uh, that Caroline was going to flip on them. There's speculation about that. I think it was like the New York Post had an article. She was spotted in New York or something. Yeah. Could That's be. right. And it was like a it was like a 20 minute walk from the Southern District of New York. That was the kind of story. So there's a lot of speculation that why is she in New York? Why is she clo- so close to the Southern District office? I mean, it could she could have flipped too. if you're if you're sort of anybody in that top brass. <laughs> if I was her, I'd be singing. Yeah, I'd be singing if I was yeah, her. Ex- <laughs> exactly. Um, they, and and I, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Crystal. Oh, well, I was just going to ask, you know, were there indications that the SEC or the uh, FCT, what is it, FTC, F- FTC, Futures Commodity Trading Commission, FCTC? CFTC. CFTC. I always screw CFTC. that one up. Commodities Future Trading Commission. There it is. Um, were they investigating before this all hit the fan? Because my other question, uh, being, you know, very focused on politics here, is there were a lot of lawmakers who were getting money from these people. They were on both sides of the aisle. Um, there was some indication that the uh, their regulators were starting to look at FDX a while ago. There was a letter that was sent from a bipartisan group of lawmakers who were basically like, hey, lay off. Um, and uh, so I, I've a lot of lingering questions about whether they were looking at him before, whether they were pressured out of looking at this whole mess by some of these lawmakers who were effectively on the FTX dole. It's a great question. I mean, and right now it sort of is an open question. I didn't see anything myself from the CFTC or SEC that said that they had a a bunch of uh, sort of foreknowledge on this event. Um, But you're absolutely right. I mean, I actually talked to kind of weird. It's like the first time some senator office reached out to me and they sort of were asking questions about uh, the regulation regulation side of the stuff. And what they said is, well, SBF was sort of the leading guy for a lot of the crypto regulations. So they're having to sort of build back from scratch, which is obviously you don't want to go with the regulation created by the guy who's just been accused of billions of dollars of fraud. So now you have to sort of like find out, you know, what why was he even wanting this regulation in the first place? How can we eliminate that stuff without throwing like sort of the baby out with the bathwater? Obviously, we need crypto regulation. So what does common sense crypto regulation look like? And one big question around that, not to get too technical, but like is the question around decentralized finance. I mean, in a large way, a lot of this was a problem of centralized finance, which is just like when you have a guy in some company who's kind of in control of it all. And so the question is, is our regulation going to how can it meaningfully regulate decentralized finance, which is very different from centralized, where there's like rather than a guy in charge of the loan book, it's a computer code that's in charge of the loan book. How do you regulate that? And I think there's huge open questions there. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, what he did was illegal, clearly, based on the laws that we already have in place. So it may just be more a matter of enforcement and some increasing skepticism and maybe some, you know, beefed up funding of those departments to be able to enforce laws against wire fraud and straw donations and just, you know, outright defrauding and stealing from your customers. 
that might be the answer more so even than uh, a whole other set of regulations specifically for crypto. Because my fear is there if you do sort of like more specific crypto related regulations, you actually further ensconce them in a way into the financial system. Whereas if you, you know, just go after them for the clear fraud and criminality that is already existing in some of these spheres, it might ultimately be a more effective approach. Yeah, you're actually right. I mean, there's, you're absolutely right that there's already laws in the books. I mean, even for a lot of cryptocurrencies, they pass as securities. They're unregistered securities being sold all over the place, and the SEC sort of is doing nothing. Um, to your point, though, I, I mean, a, a lot of these agencies are full of really smart, really co- competent men and women sort of bogged down in bureaucracy with too much to do and too little time to do it. So ironically, I think I do agree with you. A lot of times it's just an underfunding issue, um, and we kind of need to beef up some of these agencies to hopefully do their job. Indeed. Coffeezilla. Well- yeah, so great Thanks to so have much. you. Um, um, I'm also, as you can probably tell, sort of uh, fascinated and repulsed by these various levels of scams that prey on the vulnerable, prey on societal failures. And so it's really invaluable to have your view of all these things. Yeah, and uh, I will be uh, watching your channel like a hawk, hoping to see a video on supplements and how scammy they are, <laughs> hoping to see a video on uh, <coughs> the YouTubers who did the pump and dump schemes. These are ideas for you. You don't have to write them down or anything. No. I'm just saying. He's on Keep him it. in the back no, of your mind. No, Kyle, thank, thank you for giving me, you've given me an, another week of work here. I was going to take the Christmas off, but you know what? That's not happening. We're yeah. going back to work. <laughs> we need you, coffee. Um, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Great chatting Our with you. Our pleasure. Thanks. All right. That was Coffeezilla, everybody. I love that guy. That was fun I think to he's great. Um, yeah, I told you that uh, I actually first stumbled across him relatively recently um, when the FTX collapse happened. I tried to consume as much as humanly possible on it to get like a, you know, full understanding. And he was always like top of the search bar when you type in like FTX or Sam Bankman Fried or whatever yeah. on YouTube. And um, just super thorough with all the stuff that he covers. Yeah. It's a really important niche that he's carved out for himself, especially in this era where you have, you know, all kinds of scammers on Twitter, on YouTube, in crypto and there isn't a lot of uh, institutional power put into sort of exposing these scams. So, like, obviously the mainstream outlets completely failed at noticing the very obvious, in retrospect, red flags about this guy. And so it falls to independent media to be able to take a harder look at a lot of these um, scammers. So, you know, I think it's actually incredibly important work that he's doing, ultimately. You know— Independent media has problems, but there's always like a stark reminder every couple months of how much worse the problems are with corporate media. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this is what a gigantic oversight. Like, it was basically he bribed all these big outlets to give him positive coverage, and they did. Yeah. And then now that this all blows up, I think the thing that's most annoying to me is there's never any moment of accountability. Yeah. There's never, you know, it's just like they just move on as if nothing happened, as if their credibility wasn't just utterly destroyed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that really will, I think, stick with me from this podcast that he he really laid out is people get sold a dream. Whatever is their struggle, whatever their, like, aspiration is, if you find the the right con person can package that up in just the right way and put it in front of people, and we all have, you know— sort of these psychological weaknesses that can potentially be exploited. So 
it's easy, for example, for me to look at these like, you know, penny stock bros on Twitter and be like, this is totally ridiculous. But it's because it's not tailored to me. It's not meant for me. It's not the scam that would like fall into what my whatever my potential like psychological weakness and frailty would ultimately be. Like, for example, a new nail polish thing. For example, like <laughs> really great nail polish strips that, that I happen work. to really like. Um, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's a sign, too, that these scams are running so rampant. It, it is another sign of just like deep societal decay, because that's what they prey on when Society's failing to live up to its promises when um, institutions that are supposed to be trusted, when they really fail you, that's when you open up the path to be like, you know, the established financial system sucks and it's scammy. So how about you come over here? We have built this other great thing that's going to actually give you the wealth and the promise and the life of your dreams. Yeah, it makes me think about how in the social democratic countries in the Scandinavian region, they have very, very, very low crime rates very, very, very low recidivism rates. And it just so happens to be the case that basically everybody's needs are met there. You yeah. know, like the the floor is a reasonable floor and then you can work your way up from there. And, you know, it's high taxes on the wealthy. It's very strong social safety nets. You know, it's uh, health care and education. And they don't even, in some of those countries, they don't even have a minimum wage because basically everybody's unionized. So, like, the, the floor wage is actually higher than what any minimum right. wage would be. Well, and they have, like, sectoral bargaining. Right. So higher mm-hmm. wages are set by sector. Right. So it's like, yeah, you have a higher wage set for whatever job you're in already. Yeah, and so, you know, that's, a, like, a more healthy society. Yes. And, you know, you don't see as much scammy shit pop up, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, because people are less vulnerable to it, ultimately. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in terms of crypto, I'm, uh, I guess, more of a crypto hater than he is, uh, because ultimately the, the promise of crypto is this is the wild, wild west. And because of that, we'll be able to have this like frictionless transfers or whatever. But we know from history, when you have the wild, wild west, guess what happens? Guess who rises to the top? SBF, people like him, other fraudsters and conmen. It's not an accident that he would end up at like as like the leading crypto bro on the entire planet. Because ultimately, if you have this just wholly unregulated wild, wild west landscape, those the best con artists are the people who are ultimately going to be rewarded. So that's why I continue to be very skeptical of the entire sector and enterprise. I do think I'm more in his camp. I I feel like you're more with Stoller, where it's like it's all a scam. It's like... And I, I think there's a fair argument there. I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think you're like wrong per se. But you know what my intuition tells me is, yeah, it, it's like it's not used as a currency. It's used as a commodity commodity for speculation. It's not a hedge against inflation, right? Like, but there's a lot of other shit in the economy that's useless that hangs around, you know. Mm-hmm. And like, so this, so what's going on now? So your with, view isn't that it's not a scam. It's that it may be useless, but it may still hang around? Correct. I view it similar to the multi-level marketing things. That's like, this thing is kind of scammy, but it exists in this legal gray area. And so I think a similar thing will happen with crypto. Um, I do think it's very possible we get some actual regulation now, though. And with that regulation, you will see it won't be as big of a thing as it was. I'm, I have seen intelligent people, including, I believe, David Dayan over at The Prospect, made the case that, like, you don't really need new regulation. You need enforcement. To enforce the regulations because they have. The part of, of the 
happy story of what's happened with the crypto collapse is that there hasn't been an, a contagion to the rest of the economy, that it has kept, it has stayed sort of si- sidelined and siloed as its own thing. So when the bottom fell out from crypto, you did have some one-off stories about like this pension fund was hit or whatever, but you didn't have this mass systemic collapse of, you know, this thing is just strung throughout and underneath the the um, bedclothes of every piece of our economy. And it needs to stay that way. It needs to stay sidelined and it needs to not, we need to not have like teacher pension funds invested in this crap. I and agree the, with that. The more that, that you hit, there are the argument I've seen is that the more that you actually create official regulatory structure specific for crypto, the more you embed it into that regular economy and give people the illusion that this is some safe and real investment, where what you really need is just to go to town, like investigating these people, charging them with fraud where it exists and kind of let the thing collapse on its own. So you think it's going to be totally gone at some point? I think it will. I mean, I don't know. But I, I my guess is that it's going to be the peak of we've already passed the peak of crypto and it's going to continue. to. Yeah, I mean, I year. think I agree with that. I mean, I guess my only hesitation in not going full Matt Stoller is that, number one, it's a very, very bold prediction he's making that it's just oh, it's all scam. It's all going to go away. Number two, you could sort of see the, the differences here with uh, between like SBF and FTX versus what's going on with. Uh, Binance and CZ, mm-hmm. and you have CoffeeZilla who follows this stuff like a hawk. He's he's out there like, no, they're kind of different. There is no there is no Alameda for Binance. Like well, FTX co- had Alameda, and right. it was sort of like that. They, that was illegal in the right. way they did that. They were well, gambling with customer funds. With Binance, if they don't have an Alameda, I do think it's fundamentally different. He's not well, the, but the question is, there's two different questions. One is. Are who's running their crypto organizations in a better or worse way, right? That's what you're getting at. Like Binance has is maybe running it, although I don't really know, running it in a better way. FTX was running it in this worse way. There's a deeper level question over whether the concept itself is basically like a fairy tale and a scam. And that's I don't know if Stoller said it's all gonna go away, but that's his view is like basically you invented literally like fake money on on a spreadsheet. That's what you invented. And all of the value just comes from you convincing people this is worth something. And, you know, they would say, OK, but fiat currency is also just based on the faith of the people and whatever. But that's not really true. Fiat currency at this point is based on like our government and the military and the whole economy. And, you know, it's backstopped by a lot of things, whereas crypto is literally just sort of, you know, invented and grabbed out of thin air. So it's at that deeper, that's the deeper level where it might be true Binance has run better. I really don't know. But I'm, I am uh, a believer that at that deeper level, crypto is nothing. It's fake. It's invented. And that's why at core, I think it is a pyramid scheme because it depends on you convincing the next person on the next layer that it's worth something and being able to get your cash and get out. Before the whole thing crumbles. But I mean, yeah, yeah. But it, it's a fairy tale and a scam. And a lot of fairy tales and scams continue to exist is kind of my point. Yeah, well, that's a different question. Does it continue to exist? Well, I feel like that's the heart of the question, really. That, that's what I'm I think discussing those are two, here. I think there are two different things. I think there's a question, is it a, at its core a scam? And then there's another question of like, okay, but there a lot of scams do continue to exist for a long time. I understand that. Uh, yeah. I guess... My interpretation of everything Stoller said is he thinks it's a fairy tale and a scam and it's all going to be gonzies. 
That's what my interpretation of what he said is. Like I said, I'm more with CoffeeZilla that I just, you know, I think it could be bad, a scam, a scheme, all these negative words we want to throw on it. And then also it's like we're going to be dealing with this for a while, even though I fundamentally agree with you that we hit the peak. Yeah. That we are had already hit, we already hit the peak. Yeah, I'm, I'm agnostic whether it's all going to go away or Okay, so then you agree with me more than, than I thought. Yeah, I just, I think at core level, is the whole thing built on a scam? Yes. Is it all going to instantly go away? No, I think it lingers for, there's a, a lot invested in this, mainstream press is built, I mean, the business press has built it up, like, there's a lot of people with a lot of money at stake. Yeah, and some people just, they they have, like, a cinder block where their head should be, you know, like, look at, the, look at all the continued Elon Musk stands, even <laughs> after everything that's happened, like, he still has some stands, and, and it's like, <laughs> how the fuck do you have any stands? Like, you went... <laughs> Back on, like, everything you ever said. You're incredibly erratic. You contradict yourself every seven minutes. You're a weirdo. But, like, there's still some people who are like, Elon, fart in my face. I love you. Uh." I just, I don't understand. I I don't understand the people who are, like, desperately waiting for the right oligarch to preserve their free speech or to save them in whatever regard. It's like... There's a lot of them. There's a lot of those people around. Yeah, (laughs) indeed, indeed. And they exist on both sides, by the way, too. I mean, there would be another group that's just like, we need to put, you know, Yoel Roth back in charge or whatever, like, to control my speech. Anyway, another subject that I'm sure we'll get into another day. Correct. Uh, All right, guys, we love you. Everybody, do us a big old favor. Um, Go on to Substack and sign up. If you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of every single interview and you get it a day early. You can also sign up for free on Substack, and then you get the audio version of the podcast, which drops a day later. Uh, massive shout out to everybody who uh, who supports this show. We really appreciate it. Just like we were talking about before, uh, we never had a conversation with an advertiser, and it's all because you guys fund us five bucks a pop at a time. So love you guys, and we'll talk to you soon.